Hello and welcome to episode number 216 of the Nerd Pro Quo Podcast. So exciting. <clears throat> Ooh, I had to clear my throat. I would record this again, but you know, we run a very not tight ship here. That is why we have missed two weeks. In fact, this very episode that you were about to hear was supposed to come out last week, and we ran into some issues, so it is coming out this week. But it makes it even better because we have a guest. Mr. Wes Mongo Jolly came on to uh, talk about himself and his new book, which is super exciting, is coming out next week. It is uh, already, you can sign up uh, for his Patreon, so you should go do that. It's www.patreon.com slash Wes Mongo Jolly. That is W-E-S-S-M-O-N-G-O-J-O-L-L-E-Y. Or you can just go to his uh, website, and there's a bunch of other stuff. I mean, there's also poetry that you can check out. There's Wes is amazing. So uh, go check that out. Uh, also on his website, uh, westmongojolly.com. That is the same thing again. W-E-S-S-M-O-N-G-O-J-O-L-L-E-Y.com. couple things before we get started on that. Uh, also, there's going to be a link in the doobly-doo. And also on our social media uh, to all of Wes's stuff. So you should definitely go check that out. But before we start this episode, also going up uh, very uh, probably next week, we're going to have a bunch more content on the science, nature, outdoor section of the website. Going to be more pictures. There's going to be a uh, our, four, our first video of going up of basically just me telling you some really awesome hiking places that you can go in New York City via the train, uh, both in New York City and slightly outside of the city, and a couple of them are actually places that aren't the places that every, virtually every other freaking person who goes to, like, Cough Cough Breakneck Ridge, which, you, by the way, you should not go to. But we'll get more of that into the, in the video, and also there's going to be a gear review of a couple things going up. So that's going up all next week along with The Last Handful of Clover, which is Wes's new book. So if you can, uh, I am supporting it on Patreon. If you got like a dollar, if you got four dollars, you get a bunch of cool bonus content and you got extra like poetry and a whole bunch of just really awesome stuff that you can check out. So yeah, that is that. Oh, and under this because... Uh, Wes goes way back in uh, my po spoken word poetry history, maybe about 10 years back, maybe longer now. So uh, under this intro, you are now hearing a, uh, another person who you probably haven't heard for a while, which is the uh, intro music to the podcast that we started with uh, from Pauly Littman. Hi, Pauly, who may or may not be listening to this. I'm using your music again. You should also uh, uh, look up Pauly Littman and uh, check out. He has all kinds of like free music and stuff that he puts together. So yeah. Both people from the poetry community coming back to you. In any event, enjoy this episode. Episode number 216 of the Nerd Pro Code Podcast. Stay nerdy, y'all. Oh, one more thing. Slight difference in the audio because uh, another thing we were doing for the first time, and too many us, whatever, doesn't matter. You're going to notice some sound difference in this because it's the first time I was using Zoom to record the episode, so I am a little bit lower, but everyone comes in clear. It's not as clear as, say, me talking on this mic right now. 
Uh, Wes comes in a little bit clearer. There's a little bit of a difference in our audio, and you're going to notice a little bit of a difference in the audio quality because I was recording directly off of Zoom and then converted it with a new converting uh, a new file program converting words I can't say apparently. But yes, enjoy this episode. <laughs> episode 216 of the Nerdbrook Podcast and as always at Nerdbrooko on Twitter, nerdbrooko.com for updates, nerdbrooko at gmail.com if you want to hit us up. If you like this episode, tell your friends, tell your friends to tell their friends. Hit subscribe, leave a review, let us know what you think. We're finally done. This intro is entirely too long. Let's get to the episode finally. Stay nerdy, y'all, again. Okay. Hopefully, I will be able to use this. Uh, yeah, you sound great. So, we, are, we are officially recording, although we're recording via Zoom. I have only done this once before, and it was an absolute disaster. So, so oh, no. it's going it's going incredible. <laughs> uh, should we have done this another way? Maybe we should have actually no, 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 just no. done a phone call or something. What's funny is the last time I did it, I did it via Google. I think it was Google Groups, and it was a similar thing where, like, the audio... The way I had things hooked up just didn't, yeah, couldn't hear each other. It was, mm. it was horrible. And eventually, yeah. I just gave up out of embarrassment. <laughs> well, you're, techni- you're technically ahead of me because I, I, I never had to, when I was doing indie feed, I never had to do this kind of thing because I was just getting audio from people. So I never had to actually have conversations and set up how to record them online. So uh, you're probably way technically ahead of where I was. Yeah, I mean, I... The, the podcast was on hiatus for like most of 2020 just because we couldn't yeah. do it in person and like yeah. trying to figure it out was just i just maybe a month or two ago we figured out how to, and not well <laughs> we figured out how to do it and not well <laughs> it's a learning curve uh, all of all of podcasting and all of uh, <laughs> all this stuff is just you're, so, you're figuring it out as you go yeah before we get to what i re, you know what we are actually here to talk about yeah. <laughs> I, w- I want to go back in time a little bit um, and talk about uh, Indie Feed and poetry a little bit and how awesome. we met and how you got into all that. And also like where you're from and go far as far <laughs> back as you feel comfortable. <laughs> oh, God. I don't know. You might have to ask me a specific question because I'm, I'm, I'm turning 60 this year, which oh, is kind of, it kind of amazes me that I'm 60 because I feel like I'm about, you know, like 20. So it's, so, <laughs> it's so let's start with how Indie Feet started. Uh, uh, well, was. Yeah. That, and, and once again, I'm going to be really, my mind's going to be really screwed up with dates here, but I think it's, I started Indie Feet totally in, in like about 2001 or 2002 uh, and it started because I was, I've been into poetry for a really long time, but I was really mostly into things like, you know, Allen Ginsberg and a lot of the beat poets and a lot of other kind of, but I really hadn't really had much experience with slam. And then I just happened to come across a couple of slam recordings and I thought this was really cool. And suddenly I found myself just diving into this whole world that I had no clue existed that there was this huge I, I, I'm tempted to call it underground, but it wasn't really. It was right out there in the open. It's just that it's you know, it's so easy if you're not looking for it for that for you to miss that. But I just dove into it and I started finding all these great recordings, and I just got kind of obsessed for about a year. I was like totally obsessed with it, listening to everything I could possibly listen to that came out of the slam world. 
And during this time, there was another, uh, uh, I was, I wasn't, I never considered being a podcaster, but I was listening to podcasts. And there was a podcast called Indie Feed, which was a music podcast. And this guy had started all these music channels. There was like a hip hop channel and a, a, a modern rock channel. And there was just like about four or five different channels. And his idea was just, hey, let's introduce this, introduce a song, play a song. And at the end, tell the people where they can go to buy that song. And I, as I was kind of listening to all this new music, I thought, well, this is a really great format that would work really well for poetry. So I, I just kind of out of the blue, I wrote to the guy that was running it. And I said, have you ever considered having a poetry channel? And his response to me was, I've never considered it, but if you want to give it a try, I'll give you a channel. And so I thought, uh, well, I don't have any qualifications whatsoever <laughs> to try to do a podcast, uh, but I, I thought, well, have you try? Spoken word poetry? I don't, I don't really have any experience. No, it's like I none, you know, zero. <laughs> but sure, I said, sure, I'll give it a try. So I just kind of started this podcast, and I started writing to all the poets that I'd been listening to, and I started with Bob Holman kind of out of the blue, you know, Bob Holman was like a really big name. And I thought, oh, he'll never even answer me. And I wrote to him and I said, would you be interested in being in like one of the first of the few of these podcasts that I do? And to my shock, he wrote back instantly. He says, absolutely. I would love to be on. <laughs> and so I said, okay, great. So I talked to Kristen O'Keefe afterwards. And then I started talking to Taylor Molly and I just started kind of picking these people out. And every single person I asked said, yes. And it just kind of blew my mind that these people were so open. And none of them said, well, you know, I can't do it because I want to be able to, you know, I, 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 I need to get paid for my work or whatever. I thought I'd get all this pushback of all these different people not being willing to do it. And then everybody said, yeah, no one was getting paid for what. Yeah. And then I, I found out later that nobody gets paid for poetry of any kind, unless you're Billy Collins. But I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> so I just started it. And uh, it very quickly grew from just, kind of introducing the poem and then talking and then telling people where to get it afterwards or where to find the artists and where to find the poets on their websites to kind of doing a little bit of commentary and kind of talking about the poem and maybe saying a little bit about what it meant to me or just, you know, kind of, kind of just expounding on it a little bit. And it grew and it just kept growing and growing and growing. And I, I did three shows a week and I did those three shows a week every week for 10 years. Uh, and it ended up being 1,600 shows by the time we finished it up, which was kind of astounding. And I think that when we when we closed it down at the end of that 10-year run, I think we had something over 10 million downloads. Um, so it was uh, amazing. And you know, just the number of poets that I that I met during that process was just you know incredible. And uh, you know, I, I think we had something like six or eight hundred different poets on. And what was fun during the as the kind of the show went on is that. I started doing things other than slam poetry. I started like doing cowboy poetry. And then I started finding kind of just old classics that I really thought I needed to get out there. So I started doing lots of different kinds of work and people responded to that really well. And then when I started getting really burned out with it, which I did it about year six, I started bringing on guest hosts that could come in and do, you know, a, a, a week. You were on Nerd Week, I remember, which I think Shappy and, um, Shappy and Mike McGee hosted, if I recall. Yeah. Right? Okay. It wasn't Robin yeah. Q. It was. It was. It, it was. was yeah. It was Mike McGee. Yeah. And uh, and they were the ones that hosted that show. I don't remember what what that what year that was or anything, but I remember that was the time we had you on. I I loved your poem. I remember it was Nerd Love, if I remember. <laughs> it's a great poem. Um, 
but yeah, so I ended up having these guest hosts come on and they started kind of taking more of the burden off of me and doing all sorts of things that they just wanted to do. Like, you know, if you wanted to do a nerd week, that was, you know, IndieFeed was the place to do it. Or if you wanted to, you know, feature poets of the UK, I had a, a host in the UK that, that, that would, would do a series of shows. Uh, so it just, it just was a lot of fun. It was a lot of work. Uh, but at the time, I after 10 years of it, I really felt like it was kind of time to move on and do something else. And I'd spent so many years promoting other people's poetry that I really hadn't been working on mine as much as I wanted to. So I let, I let it go, which was one of the hardest decisions I ever made. But I think it was also kind of something I needed to do for myself. So. And that, that was going to be my next question was, was what prompted like the, the sort of letting go of it but it totally makes sense i mean i i did a similar thing where like i was trying to do this once a week and then uh also operate the rest of my life yeah <laughs> in a kind of a way and yeah then, and it's hard it, it can it can really claim your time and it can really claim your energy and your focus away from other things in your life and it's it's rewarding i mean it's it's, it's heck of a rewarding thing to do podcasting is wonderful but sometimes it can feel like shouting into the void because you put all this stuff out there and you don't, and you can tell people are downloading, you can tell people are listening, but you don't get much in terms of feedback. People don't like write back to you and say, oh, that was great or that was bad. It's, it's sometimes it's just like silence. <laughs> you just have to trust that what you're doing is actually getting, is making a difference and the people are hearing it. But uh, it, it can be, uh, it can be. You've gotten to the point, like, because it's gone, especially, you know, if you're not, we were doing it once a week and then to take off like a year. It's basically we're starting from scratch. Yeah, yeah. Did you did you lose a lot of your listeners over the course of that year? I mean, I think we had a lot of subscribers that have just stayed on. I don't know because yeah. again, yeah, you're right. It's kind of like yelling into the void. But we never know. Kind of, the way we've operated uh, now is we're doing it for us. For yeah, long, and that's the best that best best way to do it. It's awesome if people are listening to it, but if not, yeah. uh, it's literally become just an excuse for us to get together, and it's what we would do anyway. But now we're yeah, in. yeah, and that and that comes across. I listened to a few of your episodes, and it sounds like you guys are just having fun, and you're just geeking out and nerding out, and it's just a it's just a blast, and you, you do it for the love of the of the the camaraderie and the time you've got together and it's uh it, it doesn't doesn't require anything more than that done poems before i know you have done because a couple of them have popped up here and there uh short stories but where did the book start uh have you been just writing it forever is this one of those things or was it <laughs> was it specifically like I mean, I, I, I read through, so I don't know the exact details. Was it the pandemic I have now I can sit down and actually read, you know, write and edit this or has it been stewing in your head for? Well, this particular book is, it's, it's a five-year process, but I, I should say that I retired from my day job. I was a, um, I had a job in academia. I was a, the, what's called a records manager for Dartmouth College for 22 years which basically means that I controlled all of the information and records and digital records and physical records and retention schedules and all that for the, for the institution. But I, I finally retired from that job when I was 55, which uh, gave me the time to really start writing that I needed to have. I mean, but between leaving, I, this all kind of happened at the same time. I left IndieFeed, I kind of wound down uh, the poetry preservation project and I, and I, um, I, and I quit my job <laughs> and I suddenly found, and, and moved to Montreal. 
So all those things happened in the course of just a very short period of time. And I suddenly found myself with the time to finally write that I've always wanted to have. And it was very shortly after I retired, in this, and, but before I moved to Montreal, that uh, this, this book kind of started gestating. And it all started actually with a dream. It's a, it's a weird thing. I just had this dream uh, five years ago to the day, almost May 15th, five years ago. And that we're releasing the book on May 15th, which is why I know the date. I wanted to do it five years after the date of my first notes. But I had this really weird dream and I woke up and I made some notes and I wrote a sentence in, that, uh, in those notes, which was, um, three days after he died, Richard Pratt began to feel much better. And that was just this kind of weird out of the blue sentence in this notes that I made waking up after a weird dream. And that sentence just kind of stuck in my head for a long time and started building a story around it. And it took me five years to write because it ended up becoming more than just a novel. It became a three book Three books set. It's a half million word, three three book story, <laughs> and uh, and it took me the full five years to write it. But it's been a pretty much a full time job for five years, and it's uh, become kind of an obsession. <laughs> a couple of questions. So you were a records keeper. So Dartmouth. Oh man, I wish my geography was better. Uh, mm -hmm. Dartmouth is where? It's in New Hampshire. It's a, it's right on the border between New Hampshire and Vermont, about halfway up. Okay. And yeah. that's where I that's where I lived before I moved here to Montreal. Was actually on the Vermont side, but but yeah, I'm right now. You were you were in like on the in New Hampshire for that. That's why I was just like, I don't remember you being in Canada. <laughs> yeah, no, I no, I lived in Vermont, and I I lived at a place called Tunbridge, Vermont, which is kind of right in the middle of the state of Vermont. But I I commuted to my job in New Hampshire every every day. Sure, sure. I mean, I I've spent a lot of time in Burlington. <laughs> Oh, have you? Oh, I love Burlington. It's yeah, a beautiful, yeah. beautiful it's, town. It would, used to be, before traveling shut down, used to be the place that was just like, uh, I loved it because it's a city, but it's also, you can basically, if you walk about five miles in any direction, or like, all <laughs> you're out of it. <laughs> woods, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's an old hippie town, basically. And it's, it's sure, great. Sure. Uh, you mentioned, oh God, the preservation. Can you say what that was again? Because uh, The Performance Poetry Preservation Project, P P4 is, was the, the acronym of it. And it still, it's, it still exists, but it's really not very active right now. And uh, I would love someday for someone to continue it because we started, we, we did some great work, but, um, we, but it, we, it, it, kind of, it kind of came to an end as well. But basically the, what's that? What was that? Well, P4 was, uh, it was this uh, attempt to try to collect and preserve their recordings of the poetry slam movement. So we went around basically to a lot of slam masters and people who had uh, historical documents relating to the first 25 years of slam and collected those up. So CDs, uh, chapbooks, uh, business documents, pretty much anything we could find that kind of documented the history of slam. And the goal was to take all that material in and eventually start digitizing it all. And uh, we ended up with a ton of material and uh, we've uh, ended up t passing it over to, believe it or not, Dartmouth College. <laughs> Dartmouth College's Rounder Special Collections Library now has the P4 collection, which is uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of CDs and tapes and videotapes and chat books. And it's a really, really good collection of slam history. Oh. We just never got to the point where we were able to digitize it. And that would be the next step if we ever actually sure. had the money and the uh, personnel that were willing to do it. Funny side, uh, weird. <laughs> corollary to that is uh in a drawer uh not here at this home but at my parents place uh at some point i think taylor 
was was involved with that, uh, trying to do that for Urbana. So there is a drawer at my parents' place that has basically, uh, because they recorded virtually every Urbana slam. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm pretty sure Taylor Molly has forgotten about this. So if he hears his podcast, he's, <laughs> he might be curious as to what happened to them. I basically have 10 years worth of Urbana slam or so. Oh, really? Urbana slam CD recordings in a drawer that he was just oh, like, wow. Hey, can you listen to these and like pick out stuff that we might want yeah. on like a collection? And I yep. started it. And again, it was one of those things that was just like, it was just so much material. Oh wow! Well, you you should well want to consider uh, getting that to us because I we we could then just uh, catalog it and at least preserve it. The problem with with uh, recorded CDs, the CDs you record in house, is that the media doesn't last very long. Yeah. So you might start finding that even some of those CDs from the earlier years of Urbana might already be unlistenable. You never you you, you don't know. Sometimes they last forever, and sometimes they last five years and they're gone. So kind of a crapshoot. I mean, some of the stuff I I found some stuff in there that is just magical <laughs> yeah yeah that's the thing is that every there's someone yet uh, much of this stuff was recorded by the slam masters or just people that were there but it's just sitting in shoe boxes in people's closets and that was our whole goal with p4 was let's get it out of the closets let's get it into a place where we can like figure out what we've got and make it a resource for for uh researchers and uh, scholars and the general public and anybody that wants to be able to you know go back and look at this stuff you know we, we figured there's a lot to learn from it like you know how were poets in new york city talking differently about 9-11 than they were talking about than 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 poets in austin texas how what was the difference between those two experiences and how they talked about it in the poetry and so if, you, if you're a graduate student that wants to write a, a dissertation it's a gold mine for that kind of stuff. If you want to if you really want to dig into it. Uh, so I'm trying, I'm kind of bouncing around. I know me too. I'm sorry. <laughs> I have, I have too many passions. So I ended up going kind of, you know, from one to the other without. <laughs> Eventually uh, there is a question I usually ask people at the end that, that uh, uh, relates kind of to that. Um, but the other thing I want so as far as like slam, were you, uh, I know because it's New England, there there were like there's a whole like separate universe now. Now that basically like the National Poetry Slam is kind of folded, like it kind of doesn't matter almost to New England because like <laughs> there's a uh, much like there there's a whole group in the South too that it's just like its own universe kind of connected to the colleges. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how connected were you to that community? Were you ever on a team? Locally, locally, hardly at all. There was really very little slam. There was a there was a slam in Manchester that still existed while I was there, but I, I never I never got to it. Uh, there was one up in uh, Burlington, but it folded about the time I started Indie Feed. So my entire community that I connected with was New York City. I was in New York constantly, and uh, I was sometimes like three or four times a year for as long as a month at a shot. And I would go down there and move into um, a rooming house. There was a, it was actually a rooming house that was run by the Hare Krishnas. It was right on Third Avenue, right off from just a few blocks from the Bowery Poetry Club. And they would rent me a loft above their washing machines. It was just big enough for a, a bed and my and my bag. And I would live there for, for a, you know, a couple of weeks at a time, and just spend every day going to. You know, um, Urbana one night, Louder Arts the next night, and then the and then the, uh, to the um, oh the, the the big one down on the um, 
Yeah, yeah. So, but I'd, I'd go to a different slam every night. And there was usually three or four that you could go to in the course of a week. And then there were open mics and readings every other night. So I, I basically would immerse myself in poetry for a month at a shot going to New York. And that's where my community was. I mean, I loved the, especially the Urbana people. I just became so close. You know, uh, Kristen is still like one of my very best friends. And uh, I still stay in touch with a lot of other people like Taylor and others that, yeah, that I met. I, I still talk to a, a couple, a handful of those people. Because one of the yeah. things that happens is that, uh, especially if, I mean, you're you're older than I am, but you, reset, you read it, reach a certain age and you were coming in at an older age. So it's yeah. kind of like, there's just certain things that you're just like, uh, I'm going to be close with you, you and you after mm-hmm. this. I don't, yeah, yeah. I don't really need that. And that's not an insult. I'm not trying to insult any of the rest of the people. Oh, no, yeah. I really need to talk to the rest of you. Well, and that was the thing that was really true about Slam. It was always true, was that that young people gravitated into Slam, and then 80 to 85% of them moved either out of uh, of poetry and writing completely, or they moved into other stuff. They became hip-hop artists, or they became, you know, page poets, or they became, uh, you know, they they moved on to short stories and fiction or like Kristen, she ended up writing, she's ended up writing historical, historical stuff. So everybody kind of moved away from slam. And there's only a few people that kind of remained slammers during that period. But of course there was a new batch coming in all the time. So you could go to down to New York every year and see a whole new crew. It would be a whole, you know, there'd be some, a few of the old regulars, but there'd be a whole new batch of people coming through. And I love that about Slam. I love that it was a transition for some To a certain extent, you know, once Cupsy got up and big and running, uh, Cupsy just became like a feed program. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So it's just like you continually, like whoever was the next, the next handful of college students in New York yep. got into their ver- the various slam teams on, at the various yep. colleges just ended up at the venues. And some of them ended up, I think, Barrett, I mean, not probably not now, but for a while, a bunch of those people just took over what used to be Urbana at Bower Poetry yep. Club, uh, which is a whole, it's not even, I mean, were you there during like the, la- were you there the last night? I don't think you were there the last night. You probably had gone to. No, I don't think so. It's been yeah. quite a few years since I was down there. That, that last week was weird. <laughs> and what it's become is odd. Oh, was it really? <laughs> yeah. you're, still in, you're still in New York, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I'm, you are still in New York, right? What? Oop, you've frozen a little bit. Hold on. I, you're, you're kind of freezing. Oh, there. Okay. Now you're back. I, I was I was asking if you're still in New York. Yeah, yeah, I'm still in New York. Okay, I figured you were. Yeah. Uh, I, the room I am currently in right now used to be Jared Singer's. He moved. Oh, really? Roommates with him, and then he moved out, and I took over his room, and then uh, another guy moved in uh, in the room next to me. Oh, that's uh, awesome! I, I love Jared. He was like, in fact, I was talking to Mike McGee a few weeks ago, and uh, probably a few months ago now. And he asked me, he says, well, who are some of your favorite poets from, from when you were in, uh, in New York? And immediately, the first one that came to my mind was Jared Singer. I, said, I just loved everything he did. I loved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I want to get into where you're sort of, before, before we really get into talking about specifically the book, I want to kind of, okay. <laughs> generally speaking, like where, because, uh, you know, there's Poetry, I got a, I kind of get an idea a little bit of, of where your nerddom lies as far as what you've been writing about. 
because you can kind of like when you see oh wow you're just kind of like i can kind of see the 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 sort of universe you exist in but uh what what are yeah what are your things well it's funny because i i always say that i i am put to shame by some people who are really really hardcore nerds like yourself because I, I listen to your podcast and you guys know detail about the universes that you're interested in whether it's whether it's video games or whether it's movies or whether it's comic books or whatever you guys have in your heads these incredible details about these universes that just put me to shame i i don't have anywhere near the nerd cred you guys <laughs> God, I mean, I'm I'm into weird stuff that probably is less um, less nerdy than, uh, than 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 what you guys are into. I mean, yeah, I'm into like you know Western novels, and I'm into um, horror novels, and I'm into uh, just reading in general. I've got you know I got so many books that just is insane. Um, but I don't know if I really have like you know the. I don't have the really strong, this is my obsession, passion, nerd area that, uh, that I see in other people. And I kind of, I kind of miss that, or I, I'm kind of envious of it. You know, people that really can just focus themselves into, into a really particular niche and learn every freaking thing they can about that thing. That just kind of amazes me. I think my, my uh, superpower, if I have one, is that I just like to touch absolutely everything. I mean, I know a little bit of World War II history. I know a little bit of every kind of genre of, uh, of uh, fiction that's out there. I, I study uh, lots of esoteric religious stuff, you know, there's a, but I, I have a tendency to just bounce around from one thing to another without really becoming, uh, without becoming really deep knowledge on any one thing. And I don't know if that's good or not, you know. It is, it's funny because despite I, as the way I may or may not come across, I think it's just that they're, I bounce around. I have dabbled in basically every single thing that you have just said. <laughs> so I bounce around. Yeah. <laughs> and what usually happens is there's some specific thing or like there'll be like three or four things that I'll be like really in, intensely into. And it's not like I, my attention span leaves it. Mm -hmm. It's just that like I'll be really into it for a little while uh and then i'll be really into something else for a little while and then five months later i'll mm -hmm. come back to that thing that i was really into before and oh yeah really into it no, that's yeah that sounds familiar i have a tendency to bounce around like that too and i can you know, I'll, I'll get into like a particular author and i'll read everything i can possibly read by that author uh and then all of a sudden without warning and i won't even know why i'll realize that oh I haven't read anything by that author in two years now. It's just like it completely goes out of my mind. And it's because it's like whatever is coming in on one side is pushing out something on the other. So there's only so, so many things I can keep in my brain at one time. And whatever is kind of new and shiny in front of me has a tendency to push something out the back. <laughs> so it's, I often lament that I, uh, that I kind of lose my focus on things. I mean, the fact that I did, that I did Indie Feed for 10 years is kind of a miracle. And the fact that I finished this book is kind of a miracle. Because you know, those are those are long periods of me focusing on one thing. So that, in my life, that does not happen that many times. Sure. Uh, so, 
we will get to the book. I just, I just. Oh no, this is fine. Do we can talk about anything you want? It's fine. <laughs> set up enough, like, because there's so much stuff I like. Because again, like, I haven't talked to you or seen you. I don't know in like over ten years. Yeah. I have so many questions. <laughs> uh, what prompted the move to Canada? And it was because that's a whole, you know, that's Quebec, so that's that's. <laughs> yeah, it's Canada. There were a lot of factors for for that. I mean. There's the the history behind there is that my partner um, uh, uh, Ivan uh, moved from Canada to be with me in the United States in about 1998 1999, and we spent about 10 years working on getting him citizenship or at least a green card in the U.S. And it was a freaking nightmare. We had such a difficult time, and for many, we literally, I could tell you horrible stories about it, but there were times where we thought we were going to become refugees because we were being told that they weren't going to let them stay in the country. Um, they, they basically told him that, that he'd, they'd approve him for one more year, but if he, came, if he came back, that they would not allow him to come back another year. And this went on for years and years until we finally got him a green card. So it was, we, we had kind of a, a bad experience with the whole process of, of immigration. <laughs> um, but then at the same time, we started realizing that, you know, there was a lot going on in the U.S. that was kind of feeling like we were not wanting to be there anymore. Um, the, the whole election of Donald Trump was about the last straw. Uh, we had had a lot of reason to think that it wasn't worth us trying to continue to work on Ivan, trying to get him citizenship because it, it had been such a difficult thing. And then we started realizing that maybe we don't even really want to be in the U.S. anymore. Maybe we really want to get out. And we have a lot of connections in Canada. And we had a lot of connections with, uh, uh, in Montreal specifically. And um, we'd lived in the country for 10 years. Uh, well, for more than that, for, 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 for 20 years in the, in the kind of the way in the backwoods. We were at the end of a, like a several mile long dirt road. Uh, and we had like, you know, 20 acres of land and we were just no couldn't see a neighbor from where we lived it was like really the middle of nowhere and i was feeling more and more drawn toward urban life as was evidenced by my continually going to new york city uh ivan was starting to feel like he was getting burned out on the country uh it was becoming so much work and we we're both getting older and so we just kind of like all the factors just kind of were coming together and finally we sat down one day and we said you know let's just go let's just leave um I'll quit my job, we'll leave the, we'll sell the house, we'll move to Montreal, and we'll buy a condo. And that's what we did. <laughs> so we ended up coming here. And the timing was good because it was right, you know, right around the, the, uh, the Donald Trump election era. Uh, and we had uh, uh, we realized that we didn't want to be through four more year, four years of Donald Trump being the president of the U.S. So we, we bailed and we just moved up here. And it's been the best decision that I think we ever made because we love it here. It's a beautiful city. Um, quarantine's been difficult. Um, that's been that's been a challenge because uh, Montreal and Quebec and specifically had a pretty hard was hit pretty hard by the by the pandemic. Um, and sometimes when during the pandemic, I think, well, it sure would have been nice to be sitting on my porch uh, out in the middle of the woods and not have to worry about you know the the the, the quarantine as much. But you know, but other than that, I think it's been a really good good experience, and I'm. Trying to learn French is really difficult. Question. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a big difference between learning French when you're uh, learning a new language when you're a twenty-something and you already know another language or you've at least studied another language, as opposed to being in your mid-fifties and have never spoken any other language in your life. And it, 
was a it was a nightmare. Me trying, I took I took French immersion classes for close to a year, and it was probably the most traumatic thing I've ever been through. And my French is still really really horrible, but I I can read it now. I'm working my way through Dune in French, which is, uh, oh, which is that'll do it. You'll, yeah. you'll know French by the end. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my favorite books. So I figured I know the story well enough that I could figure it out. <laughs> so just because you mentioned this and it, I, I, whenever something, somebody brings up something like this, I was just like, Ooh, I want to know which ones <laughs> you brought up like esoteric religions. Yeah. Uh, what, 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 <laughs> what maybe were you interested in? <laughs> oh, well, there's history there too. Uh, <laughs> um, when I moved to, I moved to uh, California in the, um, what would it have been, 1990, maybe 1996, I think, around there. And, um, well, for my 30th birthday, so that would have been 30 years ago, starting before that. Um, for my 30th birthday, I decided I wanted to start experiencing some um, some of the neo-pagan religions that were out there because I was just kind of curious. So I did a summer where I traveled around to every neo-pagan Wiccan witchy gathering I could possibly go to. And I ended up falling in with a group called the Church of All Worlds, which I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Uh, it's actually, if you've read Stranger in a Strange Land, you've yeah. read Strangers? No? Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, the religion of the uh, of, of Michael Smith in Stranger in a Strange Land is the Church of All Worlds. Well, this guy named Otter Zell uh, started a church of all worlds in the mid seventies and, uh, and, and it ended up becoming a very big neo-pagan group. It's one of the biggest neo-pagan groups in the country. So I ended up falling in with them and ended up spending a good number of years, uh, kind of not, not living on their commune, but living in their living up in that area with all these kind of hippie pagan, uh, folks and editing their magazine. There's a magazine called green egg and I ended up being the layout design editor for their magazine for years. So, I kind of got really kind of deeply into the the pagan world. And at the same time I was reading a lot of pagan stuff, I kind of got into a lot of Hindu stuff and I got into a lot of uh, Buddhist stuff. And I started also getting into a lot of ceremonial magic, things like, uh, like the golden dawn and, uh, and uh, uh, Thelema and a few things like that. So I started kind of studying a lot of these kind of esoteric magical systems. And I have a whole bookcase full of books on, uh, pagan and Wiccan and, and ritual magic stuff that I, I... I don't have an entire book, but it's definitely... I mean, the one thing that I started to get into is... is just because I have a very long history with martial arts, yeah. so one of the things that I got really into was Zen Buddhism, and yeah. I had a... I don't know... Yes, because it was post-slam. After I injured myself, I had, like, a head trauma injur injury the whole like doing zen buddhism like meditation there was a lot of stuff in there and also like you know memory and some of the pagan stuff and like, yeah that like it once you go down like you, you I'm, it's I'm, a rabbit hole I, I'm, I'm not someone who dips <laughs> my toe in stuff really yeah I, like it's like oh that and again you brought it you brought it was like oh golden dog okay uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, we'll be here for four hours oh yeah we could be it's <laughs> <laughs> like oh can we can we talk about the connection between between you know Alistair Crowley and Scientology and that oh my god you you, you do have a you do have a little bit of <laughs> nerdology in this don't you <laughs> weird like 70s Hollywood and yeah, yeah. <laughs> we could, that's a whole 
Uh, hold on the show. <laughs> That's great. Uh, but yeah, I just like as soon as someone brings up something like that, I'm just like, I can't let that go. <laughs> there are definitely some questions about that. So all of that, like all the stuff that you've read, you know, all the stuff you've been into, the traveling, I, I would imagine, because this is like really your first, I think, like full length book. And then you're saying it's becoming like, a, I guess, like a series. Well, it's, a, it's my first full length fiction. I've written a lot of short stories. In fact, I was writing short stories when I was like 20 and I still have a ton of short stories from my 20s and 30s. Where I kind of fell out of it and ended up going back into poetry. And I've written, a, I have two poetry collections that I have up on Wattpad, uh, but this is my first full-length fiction. And yeah, it's a for for <laughs> for what should have been. A, it's not the. It's not a normal first novel. People don't normally delve, you know, five, a half million words into a into their first novel. So I, the fact that it's as long as it is, and the fact that it's uh, it, it's kind of a such an became such an obsessive. Uh, project for me is probably going to make it very difficult for to be sellable to a traditional publisher, which is why I'm going the Patreon route. I'm just kind of putting it out there as a way to you know let people uh, let people read it if they want to. <laughs> so funny enough, like when you brought up like that, oh, you had a dream and you had this line. The the comic book that I'm working on was a very I just I had a dream and yep. a character, and I was just like, oh, that's. Because occasionally that happens to me. I'm sure it happens to you where like you'll have a weird dream or just something will pop into your, your, in your subconscious. I don't know how in touch with your subconscious you are. I'm a very much a lucid dreamer. So yeah, are you really? I yeah, wish I could. So I will wake up and I'll be like, that seems like, like entire storylines will go. While mm -hmm. I'm yeah. Yeah. I'll wake up. And before like I fade out, I'll be like, I got to, write down a couple lines about this and then it just develops from there but it's funny that you brought it and it's similar thing it's i've been sitting on it for like five yeah years. and finally like it just like the outline became the script for the first issue and now i'm doing the layouts for the art and it's yeah it's gonna be yeah funny. well and, and it's weird how you never know what's gonna kind of claim you from that stuff because you could do that kind of thing. I'm, I'm a journal keeper for forever i've got like something like 7,000 pages of journals that I've kept in my life over the, over the years. And I, I will just have these ideas and flights of fancy. Sometimes they come from dreams. Sometimes they're just ideas that come out and I'll just throw them into this journal. And I never expected this one, this particular one about this one particular line out of this one particular weird dream would ever kind of grab me and would be like the chariot that would, would take me for five years would become an obsession for five years. Cause I, other I was working on a different novel. I, I, I had a, a novel that was well underway. It was all about the um, uh, the Mountain Meadows massacre in Salt Lake City, and in, in, in Southern Utah. It happened in 1847. It was a kind of a historical romance novel <laughs> of uh, of uh, that was set during this particular wagon train that got slaughtered by the Mormon Church um, when it, when they passed through Utah in 1847. Uh, and I was way into that novel before this book suddenly took me completely once again it's one of those things that this came in the front of my mind and pushed that out the back so someday i might go back to that novel because it's still it's still about half done um but this thing just kind of grabbed me another comic book too it's just like i developed for really you know did a whole lot like i know exactly what happens you know yeah <laughs> exactly and then this just popped in i was just like oh this is like a 
that's more like a oh that's gonna take me forever to do this is more like oh yeah if i only did one issue of this and put uh-huh. it independently and people actually read it yeah i wouldn't necessarily have to do more i'd surely have more <laughs> ideas with it and i've written down more yeah ideas, but it's more like a, it was the, yeah. something i can get done <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. And getting it done is the key. It's like, I, I feel really grateful that I actually finished this thing because it was, you know, there's so many things in my life I started and got halfway through and never finished. So this is something that like, it was, it was obsessive and enough that it, it actually forced me to actually complete it. And I'm now in the phase for the thing where I'm just basically, you know, doing proofreading passes over it. And, uh, it, but the writing is, is pretty much done. And to have something of this scope, that I actually completed is actually feels like quite a quite an accomplishment for me personally because I don't normally do that. So, so a couple of questions just about writing, uh, and specifically about this novel. Number one, do you have? Well, number one, have you written? I'm I'm assuming you've read Stephen King's on writing. It's just a fantastic oh yeah 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 I have fantastic book. <laughs> yeah, it's a good book. Even if you're not a writer, it's just a fantastic book about like yeah. the creative process. Absolutely. Did you have like a did you have like a routine with writing the book or do you have Yeah, I did and uh it got completely disrupted during the pandemic but I had fallen into uh, a really really good routine in about the 2 years prior to the pandemic where um there's a um uh, the Bibliothèque Nationale the, uh, the the big library that's here in the in Montreal has a uh, um uh, an incredible reading room with this absolutely beautiful and inspiring. If you go there and you sit there, you just want to be creative if you're in that space. So I would get a, a, a process every day where I would get up, read, I would read for several hours in the morning, go to the gym, leave the gym, have my lunch uh, in the park there near, near the library, then go to the library and spend the rest of the afternoon in the library writing. And I, and I write on my iPad. I don't write on a computer. Uh, but then I could come back here and I edit on the computer. But uh, my the the time to just actually compose and write uh, new stuff as opposed to editing stuff. Um, nearly this entire book happened in the in that library. And uh, now that I can't go there anymore and haven't been there for like a year and four months or something, I want to go back there so bad. <laughs> You know, it's like I, I feel like I need to go back there before I start my next project. I need to go back there because that's the place that really, uh, really kind of sparks that creative impulse in me. Not the not the technical part of actually editing or cleaning things up, but actually creating from scratch. That library to me is the place where that happens. And so I, I'm hoping I can get back there sometime uh, by the end of the summer. And, and what you're actually releasing is that what draft is that how much have you been editing and uh it's it's probably the third to fourth draft of everything uh i but that but that means that there's been tons and tons of small drafts in between i mean i when when i when i've gone through a, the whole novel through a major pass that is a complete almost a complete rewrite from where i where i look at the whole thing as a whole decide to move scenes remove scenes take new scenes out uh you know write a new scene um, uh, and then maybe rewrite something that just wasn't working. Every time I go through with a pass like that, I give it a new, uh, a new version number, and then I save it. I save the uh, the previous, um, the previous you know, draft. So there's been four of those, and so I'm on the fourth. I'm on the fourth draft right now. Other people that you've handed stuff or is your partner your editor? Are or are you are you basically just going like okay? 
Patreon subscribers, you're going to be my editors. Patreon subscribers are going to be kind of the first people are going to see this thing. I actually got one person that's read maybe uh, that just a friend of mine here that has probably read about maybe the first 15 chapters or so. It's 207 chapters long. (laughs) So this person's read about the first 15 chapters. And so I've gotten some feedback there. But basically, this is all people are getting this, you know, right, right, fresh. Was, Nobody else has really seen it at this point. Was that just, uh, just I need to get this out of me or away? From yeah, kind of. I don't know. I'm, I'm never, I'm never good at trying to. I think I'm really bad at marketing. I'm really bad at trying to get my work out there. I mean, I've got, I've written four or five hundred poems in my life, and I've only probably submitted, a, you know, several, a few dozen in, in the, all that time. So it's like both you and me, Kristen. Yeah, and I think it's true. It's it's true of a lot of it's true of a lot of poets I've noticed too. It's like it's almost like there's a different kind of a personality or mindset that need that you need to have to be a good marketing person as opposed to a good creative person. And I just don't have both. There are people that do, and I look at them like uh, Kristen is my is my she she's my muse and uh, (laughs) and uh, in a lot of ways. But I look at her and it's like wow, she's brilliant. She's creative. She's also killer smart about marketing and about getting her work out there. She just knows the right way to do it. And I just wish I had all of that, but I don't, you know, I, I'm the kind of person that wishes I could just sit in my cave, write, push it out and let somebody else do all the work to get it out to the world. Yeah. You know, if that was, if I had that, if I had that the person to do that, I would be, I would be happy. Similar thing. I mean, with the podcast, with a lot of the things I do, I find that it's just like, oh, I'm doing this myself. I'm not good at doing this myself. I wish yeah. people who are good at who are better at this than I am. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it's why people are why people have editors and publishers and things sure. like that is because people there are people that are good at that stuff, and that's not what I'm doing. You know, I'm a writer. I want to be a writer. You know, <laughs> so if you had to describe the book. I guess you you're you are not obligated to be concise at all. <laughs> <laughs> like gun to your head if you had to uh first tell us what the name of the book is and what the, the premise is. I okay. guess let's start there. I started there. All right. Well, the name of the book is The Last Handful of Clover. And uh the book is primarily, I guess, an I, I think of it as, as a kind of like an epic meditation on loss, regret, and redemption. Um, it's a supernatural thriller. So it's, uh, it, and it's a ghost story. As I'm obviously, when I said the, that line at the beginning or three days after he died, he started to feel much better. It is a story where, where about half the characters are dead and half the characters are alive. Uh, so it's being told from both the perspective of the living and the dead. It's all set in Salt Lake City. And uh, there's an incident that happens in about 1851 where the Mormons um, attack and murder a tribe of Goshute Indians. And this is an actual historical incident. Sure. And in the course of that happening, there's one particular man, and he's actually a historical figure named George Drouillard, who was a member of the Lewis and Clark expeditions. Um, his rage at what is done to him and his, and his tribe at that uh, point creates a bubble between the worlds of the living and the dead. So there's like a, a, a bubble that kind of encloses the entire Salt Lake Valley. And into this bubble, he is able to pull souls from the river of where they're go- going as after they die. He's able to pull individual souls 
back into this bubble. And once they're there, they cannot leave. So for the past 150 years, he's been pulling souls back into this, this bubble. The main character's name is Richard Pratt. And he comes back, uh, once again, three days after he died. Um, and uh, he kind of comes back into this world and he starts discovering what, um, what, what's happening here, that, there's, that he's not the only one, he's not the only ghost that's back. But at the same time, he's, uh, there's the, a lot of the story concerns uh, him and his lover. It's, uh, they're, the pr primary characters are gay. So the um, uh, Richard Pratt's lover's name is Keith Wu. And Keith uh, uh, is much younger than Richard. He is like about uh, 25 when they meet and uh, Richard is in his late 50s. So there's a kind of a study about uh, Keith's, um, Keith's loss and how he deals with it uh, and the people in his life. So that, that story is being told at the same time that the story of Richard is told. Uh, where he is learning about what has happened and how he's going to try to save the life of not only his lover, but also everybody else in the Salt Lake Valley, because there's the, the evil presence of, uh, of George Drouillard is basically teaching his ghosts how to possess people. And when he gets enough of them that are able to possess people, he's going to unleash them as an army against Salt Lake City, and they're going to possess people and start killing people. And so about halfway through the novel, that, that process starts. And uh, then the, that's where it goes from there. Telling much more than that would probably be some spoilers. Sure, sure. <laughs> but that gives you an idea of the sense of the general idea of the novel. A couple of questions, uh, not necessarily specifically towards content in the novel. I mean, we can, I'm going to post the, the Patreon link and we, you know, we're going to plug that at the end. Uh, Great, thank you. Plug it now <laughs> because we should do it more than once. So what is the Patreon <laughs> link uh where should people go to check it out if well the the best place to go is just go to my website on my fiction page so go to westmongojolly.com it's w-e-s-s-m-o-n-g-o-j-o-l-l-e-y.com slash fiction and that page is basically the promotional page for the for the novel and there's a link there to the patreon page there's a link there's a place where you can sign up for my mailing list um, lots of background information. I've had some professionally drawn maps of the world. You can see those there on that site. Uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff there that, that kind of would, there's sample chapters, both in audio and, um, and, uh, text format. Uh, there's a list of the characters. There's lots of different stuff that you can kind of learn about the novel if you're curious, but then, then if you go to patreon.com slash Jolly, then you'll be able to sign up for the Patreon. If so, you're so just a couple of questions. Uh, number one, just cause it popped in my head because you mentioned the previous novel kind of about this uh it's you know both historical fiction to a certain extent mm -hmm. and also there's you know modern times in there why salt lake city and mormons because there seems well, <laughs> probably because i was born in utah i uh, i grew up in park city utah which is just outside of salt lake city and i went to school at the university of utah so i know the area really well and i've always been fascinated by in both a positive and a negative way uh, about the Salt Lake City culture and about the Mormon culture, because I grew up as a, as a Catholic boy in a Mormon world, you know, <laughs> luckily the town I grew up in was kind of 50, 50, was like half Mormon, half not. Um, but I was always fascinated, both, both attracted and repelled by the Mormon church and by what, uh, and by the teachings of the church. And uh, it, it's fascinating to me and it always has been. So that, it felt like a good place to set the novel. Also, I just, as a side note, it, never you don't think of because this is a real historical event you don't really i mean you think of catholics and christians doing this you don't really think of mormons slaughtering people. 
Oh yeah, there's a there's a lot of them. Well, the world of history is fascinating. Yeah, there's the, the the incident in the novel where they where they slaughtered the Goshute tribe was basically because they 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 accused the Goshute of stealing some horses from a local ranch, and they basically slaughtered men, women, and children uh, uh, during that during that um, that siege. And there's been others like the other one I mentioned, the Mountain Meadow Massacre. That uh, that figures slightly into the novel as well, but it's going to figure much more into the sequel. <laughs> but that was a wagon train that just came through Utah at a time where the tensions between the Mormons and the uh, and the United States was really high because the the Mormons were uh, practicing polygamy and the and the United States wanted them to stop. And so there was be, the tensions between the U.S. and the Mormon settlements were getting really really high, and they were actually fearing that the that the U.S. soldiers were going to invade. Salt Lake City. So this was in this was in uh, 1857. They were so afraid they, they were gonna they were gonna invade that they were basically on a war footing, and that's when this wagon train comes through Salt Lake City, oh. and uh, everybody was locked out, wouldn't give them any supplies, but they got all the way to Southern Utah, and they were so paranoid that they were going to uh, uh, that they were spies among there that they basically dressed up as Indians and slaughtered the entire wagon train at a place called Mountain Meadows, and. Everybody except for the youngest children, and then they farm the youngest children out to the Mormon families to raise. Uh, so there's lots of stories like that uh, about about uh, about Utah that you know kind of you know you don't fit in the Mormon character as it's perceived today. But if you read the history, it's sure. kind of this dark history. I mean, there. what what I because I, I, you said you grew up there. What because all of it, I mean, it's not. It doesn't surprise me really at all <laughs> yeah <laughs> ever surprised me surprises me but i it, i found i've read so many things like interesting like each state has all these like basically aspects of their history that they've kind of just shoved under the rug oh yeah uh <laughs> and like there there there's stuff here in new york like that that uh i mean i like i said it, a whole because i'm also like a historical buff person especially my big thing is one of my favorite books of all time, and also the sequel is is 1491, the Charles Mann book. About, sounds familiar, but I don't think I know it. It is a a history of the hundred years right before Columbus arrives. Oh wow! In that's... North America. And yeah. then he wrote a sequel that was 1493 that's just about the first hundred years right after Columbus arrives. Yeah. And I'm kind of just fascinated by that, you know, not not so much, both like the, each state has those kind of little history things, but just there's so much just in those, that little, like, even though yeah. years, there's so much that just happened. I'm oh yeah, there's so much depth. America and so and, yeah, and so little of it do we learn about in school. It's like you know, if, if you have to read like Howard Zinn, uh, all you know, the People's History of the United States, to to learn that a lot of what we learn in the U.S. is in the, in history classes is, is basically a whitewashed version of what really happened in this country. There's there's yeah. a lot of horrible horrible stuff that happened in the first, uh, you know, the first couple hundred years of this country's. And, and was that like finding that stuff out? Was that you sought that out? I mean, how did you just random, I mean, how did you come across the, like those Mormon? Uh... Well, I, I've always known about Mountain Meadows and that was probably my entryway. And like I said, the other book that I was writing was actually a, was actually about a Mountain Meadows book was specifically about Mountain Meadows. 
but as I started uh, writing this book, uh, Mountain Meadows only kind of figures in tangentially to, to, to the story. And, and I wanted to find other um, kind of incidents that I thought that would fit into what the story was basically going to be about, because I kind of knew what, the, what it was going to be about. So I started looking for incidents in Utah history that I thought really would fit into what the novel was was trying to accomplish. And, though, and I, when I came across that story of the ghost shoots and the, and the, the, the slaughter there, that, that fit perfectly into what I was trying to accomplish with the novel. And there were a lot of others that I could have used because uh, there's a lot of stories like that. <laughs> uh, but that was the one that, that, uh, that really jumped out at me. But I've always been like a bit of a, a, a bit of a Utah history buff. I find that I find Utah history fascinating. Sure. Uh, and the, uh, a couple more questions before I get to like the final, I, uh, some silly questions that I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I love silly questions. <laughs> uh, how, so how much does, how important for you was it to incorporate like queer elements into your book or how, uh, were you just writing from something that you knew or was that like, was that like a priority or was it just kind of not even well, about. I think it wouldn't have felt honest to me to not, uh, because you know, I, I, as uh, the book is very much about aging and loss and regret, and I'm aging. I've had some loss and I've had some regrets, <laughs> but all of those things that I have are in the context of being gay, because that's been that's been the life, and it's been kind of it's kind of what I know. It's, it's it's the experience that I've had, and I wanted to write characters that I felt could come directly from my heart and could de- could could really be genuine uh and could uh live the experiences in the novel and be represented in a way that i thought was honest and just like i probably couldn't write a really good honest uh powerful novel about the black experience because i don't have that experience and i would be a bit of a poser to try i felt like I needed to write this particular novel. Who knows? Maybe the next one won't. This won't be true about. But this particular novel, I felt like I needed to be really grounded in the things that I was experiencing while I was writing it, which is the ideas of aging and loss and regret. So, the primary character Richard is not based on me specifically, uh, but he That's is. My further question is: Is like, your further question? How he, much he, of you is is in the book? Like, yeah, I like to say I hope that. I have his best qualities and I hope that I can't be accused of some of his worst qualities. Cause there's a lot about him. That's uh, kind of despicable. <laughs> um, uh, so, but I, but I think that there's, there's definitely certain parts of it that have been drawn from me. And I, I think specifically the character of, of Keith is definitely an amalgamation of a lot of people, a lot of the men that have been in my life over the years. Um, that it's more of a, that was, I say is, a, is much more of a patchwork quilt than it is a particular portrait of a particular person. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a lot of my life, a lot of details and a lot of emotional experience that have, that have been drawn on to create this story. And uh, I, I'm hoping that gives it a, a feeling of being more genuine than it might otherwise. So now I'm just going to, uh, before like we do another plug for the book, because I'm actually like all the stuff when you, when I, when I got that email, like, it was like, oh, you know, historical you know, drama, thriller. Oh, it's about life and death and like the barrier between like, it's like <laughs> all of the things <laughs> that I'm currently well, into. They're universal experiences, I think, you know, and that's one of the things that, he, that, that, that the main character comes to in the novel is the realization that this is just part of, this is part of what it means to be human. And he has worked so hard to try to, 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 to avoid dealing with it his whole life that uh, 
one of his realizations after he's dead is that uh, you know this is this is part of the natural process. So it, it's it's universal. So just a couple sort of silly questions. I love them. Your middle name. Yeah. That you go by is that your real middle name? <laughs> it is. Come from. It is my legal name. It was not the name I was born with. Okay. <laughs> uh, but I will I will tell you the story of how it came to be. Want to tell about that? You're not a, like I said. You're not. It, 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 <laughs> it's it's, it's that, a story that will take another three hours. To tell. No, it, it won't. It's it's a fairly quick story. Um, there was a guy in high school who was named Mongo. Uh, everybody called him Mongo. He wasn't named that, but that was his nickname, and yeah. and everybody just thought he was awesome. And, there, yeah. and I and I had a huge crush on him when I was. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> and. So I got that this huge crush on him. And when I graduated high school, I had a teddy bear and I started calling the teddy bear Mongo because it was named after this guy that I, that I knew from high school. And then I started drawing a face, a bear face and writing Mongo loves you underneath that all through high school and college. And people didn't realize that it wasn't me. Uh, so they started calling me Mongo. So I started being called Mongo about the time I was uh, my last year of high school and all through college, everybody started calling me Mongo. And it got to the point where I was just basically everybody that knew me, knew me by that name. And a lot of people that I knew for years didn't even know my first name was Wes. And so it just became as much my real name as anything else. And when I was finally starting trying to put some of my writing out, I thought, well, God, what do I put it out under? Do I put it out under Wes Jolly or do I put it out under Mongo or what do I do? And I talked to Kristen because I talked to Kristen about everything whenever I have a very difficult <laughs> decision like this to make. And she said, Wes Mongo Jolly is a wonderful name to use as a writer. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, that was as soon as she said that, I thought that is absolutely perfect. So this has been what, maybe 15 years ago. So I thought, yes, that feels right to me. And in fact, it feels so right that I'm going to have my name legally changed. So I did. And so now I am legally Wes Mongo Jolly. So that's how it came out. Uh, uh, a second, just because I have, I can't do it. What is your beard regimen? You have <laughs> a magnificent beard. We're, we're, this is not going to be like put up in video, but but I'll I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll ask you to send me a picture of yourself because <laughs> your beard is magnificent. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, it's actually grown quite a bit since COVID, as and my hair too. And my hair is like I'm in a my hair in a ponytail right now because I haven't had a haircut in like a year and a half. Um, but yeah, no, there's no particular regimen. I just that, it, wash it every wash it every other day and blow dry. <laughs> That's all there's to <laughs> Damn you. <laughs> I wanted some sort of secret. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's all white now. You know, it used to be kind of like just, it used to be mostly black. And I just had like these two white strips down here. But now it's like, it's all, it's gone all white. I'm, I'm Santa in a few years. That's all there is to it. Sure. And you kind of answered this question. And I think the, the, the answer was kind of no, but maybe it's, it goes from moment to moment. Is there anything, uh, well, well, before I get to that, what is filling you with joy right now? Filling me with joy, my family. Um, there's, uh, I, I'm in a triad relationship right now. Actually, I'm in a quad relationship, but there's, uh, there's three of us that live here, my partner and uh, his partner. The three of us live together here in Montreal, quarantined in a very small condo for the last year and a half, and it's still wonderful. And uh, it's amazing that you can be quarantined with 
three people in a small space and still still love each other and be totally happy with the situation you're in, which is awesome. I also have a, uh, a boyfriend in in, um, in Chicago, and I haven't seen him in over a year and a half because of COVID. That, that's, we're, we're still staying in touch, and as soon as things are right, we'll be able to see each other again. So I think that those those three men and me, you know, that, that's, that's kind of the center of, center of my world and brings me the most joy uh, of everything right now is uh, just being, in a, being, with, being with the people that I care about and uh, having them close to me. And uh, you know, that's, I, I've, I've learned that later in my life how important family is. And uh, it's, uh, I feel very blessed to have who I have. All of those people, your family. Yeah, the, the the four of us I consider to be mostly sure. my family. I I still have biological family, but my parents are both passed away, and my stepfather passed away not too long not too long ago actually, and that was a horrible experience because I had to attend him while he passed. Uh, I still have one brother that's out in Utah. We talk to each other occasionally, but not frequently. But uh, you know, my my core family is uh, is is you know the the people that are here. <laughs> so I I always get a little bit cautious when I ask because because you brought it up when I asked like identity questions mm-hmm. but do you consider yourself poly or yeah yeah we do we're we're we're, we're a poly family okay so, uh, we yeah we we use that term pretty frequently because I, I always get a little bit like it's like I want to ask I my big thing is for myself and also for other people is just you know what do you what do you want me to say about you? Yeah. <laughs> well it can be a minefield i know it's like it's it's kind of hard to talk about these things because some people are very sensitive about how they're represented and how they're how they're talked about and uh you never know exactly what the right thing to do so the best thing to do is just like you say just ask and then people will tell you I mean, okay this is how one I want of the to be big represented. things is like uh so for me like i consider myself genderqueer but i'm not super open about that and i think that i've talked about this online and once or twice on the podcast of just like weirdly like the slammed community was actually the the community that kind of turned me off to that because it was almost like i kept getting sort of nudged into like well if it's not performative then it's not real Uh, "Mm." Uh, some people that's an individual private thing yeah exactly exactly and and yeah, that's it. I I I just wanted to hear that. I mean, I would have I would have thought that would be something that the the slam community would have been a little more more versed in and handle better. Yeah, I mean, they generally they were. I I think, I think it, it was handled very well, except if it was especially because I present as, you know, uh, a certain way, that it's like unless mm-hmm. I'm performative about it it's just like well then are you really it's like, well, for me it's a yeah individual private thing and it's really none of your i mean i've only yeah. because of that i've started to be more open about it to just mm-hmm. be like can you know if you want to know that's what it is but it's also it's for me <laughs> yeah exactly and i totally get that you know i think that's one thing about being you know almost 60 <laughs> is that i grew up in an era when and i grew up in a place, Salt Lake City, where the amount of gender expression and queer expression you were able to get away with or chose to get to, to get away with could vary incredibly from zero to 100, you know, and so I think people of my generation are, are much more, gay people of my generation specifically, are much more used to trying to let, seeing people that uh, 
have have are finding their place on that spectrum of how they how they want to express themselves and how open they want to be about expressing that and how public they want to be about expressing that as opposed to i think a lot of younger people are used to a, a place where that's not as much of an issue that where people often don't make those choices they 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 are out you know <laughs> it's, it's it's a public thing it's a like i say performative i thought it was a great a great word because they're just used to that because that's there's less reason for people to keep it private now than there might have been you know 20 or 30 years ago but everybody has their reasons for for you know what, what level of expression they want to be able to have and, and how they want to express well one of the things that i mean i think it happens uh you know especially more modern uh what i've encountered not a lot honestly but there was enough of it that it just kind of like I I didn't want to talk about it as much. Yeah. Uh, until very recently, whereas like yeah. I think the, the internet and just performative culture in general has made that more. But what I've encountered is that idea of well, what do you? It almost becomes like if you're not open about it, then you know if you're it's not real and somehow you're ashamed of it. it's like no it has yeah. nothing to do with that yeah no exactly yeah you're yeah. you're you're experiencing something and you're working through uh your your identity and that's a it's an identity is an i think an, an ever-changing thing anyway yeah. your identity tomorrow may not be what it is today and it's certainly not going to be the same thing in five years so you're it's a process and, and day to day for me it's yeah. like it's like yeah so, no i i get that i just told you i identify that way as like i a week from now, I might not feel that. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, well, you're flip flop. Like, no, it's just, no, it's just I am who I am. You know, I, that, I can I contain multitudes, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that being said, I just um, as a sort of older, for do you? Is there any um, advice? Maybe is not the right word for it, but let's go with advice on like poly relationships because i feel like there's a lot of oh misconceptions poly that. yeah uh here's my uh, here's my my take it's not for everybody uh it doesn't work for everybody and it doesn't work for most people uh i just just honestly it just doesn't seem to work for most people i'm not going to judge why that is or whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing um but you just if you decide that it is something that you want to explore the only thing that that matters in poly in poly life is honesty and communication. Um, it's the same thing that matters in non poly life, but I think in poly life especially, it's incredibly important because you can't have uh, multiple relationships without having uh, multiple without, without having really deep communication about that because people's needs and feelings are going to be incredibly complicated and they're going to be incredibly shifting all the time. And if you're not talking through it all the time, it's you're going to be stepping on landmines. Um, so you just gotta, you gotta talk it through and figure out if it really works for you or not. It might not. And just, I, I want to bring this up because there's a, a friend of mine, uh, we got into kind of like a, a thread about this of just kind of laughing about this idea of like, there are people who just can't make monogamy work. So they mm -hmm. just go, Oh, I guess I'm poly. which is like, and someone made the joke. It was just like, so you're not good at keeping one person happy. <laughs> Now you're gonna try and keep multiple people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like it's that's like not, that's not that's not that's not a good idea. <laughs> no, exactly. And I've heard I've heard people say, "Well, I could I couldn't be polyamorous because I because I, I I'm too jealous." I said, "Well, you think that's not gonna bite you in yeah, a monogamous you, relationship?" <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
maybe that's the issue you need to work on, whether you're monogamous or poly. If you've got a, if you've got issues with jealousy, then focus on that. You know, it's important. Have a problem with jealousy. Yeah. And <laughs> uh, just one last thing is so even if it's just recently, is there anything that you get really excited about that, uh, I mean, this is less now, I guess, because, you know, pandemic pod, is there anything that like, when you get, that you'll get really excited about, and then when you start to talk to other people about it, they're just like, what the hell are you talking <laughs> Can I just say this book? <laughs> Like, like, okay, so you're writing this book, which is about ghosts, and they're they're living in a bubble. Okay, that's that's cool, dude. All right, <laughs> and and I, to, and to be honest, a lot of my writing and a lot of my poetry has been the kind of thing that when I when I, I do share with other people, they kind of scratch their heads and they go, I don't know what you're trying to do here, but I I don't quite get it. And so I think because of that, I often have a tendency to. I really haven't shared a lot of my work. A lot of my work is is something that's done for me primarily, and I end up keeping it pretty close to the vest. Just like you keep your identity sometimes a little close to the vest. I think I keep my my writing that way similar. I've, I've but this is a this is a this is a risk for me to put this book out because I just it's not something I normally do. But it's a it's I've gonna, gone it's on a, an arc with that with my poetry. Where like when I was in the slam, it was like everything had to be on, and that's because I did stand up too. It's like everything yeah. on stage, and now it's like I just write poetry. Like I was joking about thirty thirty. It was just like I'm kind of doing it. You, none of you are going to see any of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's awesome. That's a good way to do it. I look at somebody like you know Tony Brown, who has been writing a poem a day for. 15 years or something like that he's just an incredibly productive and it's like you know he's and he just puts everything out there in the world and i i i uh admire that greatly but that's just not me <laughs> so one more time let's plug the book the name okay where people can find out about it okay uh the best place to go is my website which is westmongoljolly.com and i have to spell that because everybody spells west with one s and it's not it's w-e-s-s-m-o-n-g-o-j-o-l-l-e-y.com and then slash fiction which will take you to the fiction page and everything there you you need to learn about the book you'll 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 see right there the, the patreon page is linked right at the top and while you're there if you're interested in my poetry i've got two books of poetry up on wattpad uh, feel free to check those out, and uh, they're free. Um, and and just to tell you about how this Patreon is working, the the idea the Patreon page uh, is once you sign up for it for as less as little as about two two fifty, uh, you know, cup, price of a cup of coffee per month, you'll get two chapters a week uh, over the course of the next about year and a half to two years <laughs> to get through the whole book. And uh, if the, if you go to higher tiers, then you'll get more like a, the five dollar tier. You'll you'll get the the audio book as well as the They'll be recording everything in audio as, as well as releasing it in text. And then higher tiers will get uh, additional short stories, poems, and other things along the way as well. So, oh. But if you just want to read the book, you know, join at the 250 level. Just read that, the book. That's actually. what I forget. One last thing, just because I, I don't want to, like, take up too much of your time. Although, honestly, some of the stuff that we've touched upon, I think I was like, I, we could be here all night. <laughs> Probably good. <laughs> I don't want to eat up too much of your time. Oh, that's fine. Uh, so audiobook, are you reading it yourself? Are you getting yeah. other people to do it? Are you? No, you I'm reading it myself, and uh, I, I've it'll be interesting because it's, it's, it's calling on my indie feed uh, 
chops to try to get back into my radio voice. And uh, I think I, I have a suspicion that I'm going to get better as I go along, that I probably will be uh, kind of a, you know crappy at it when I first start. But hopefully by the 207 chapters later, I'll actually have know what I'm doing. Uh, but yeah, the, the chapters will be released in audio at exactly the same time as they are released in text. So if you want to listen to it as an audio book, you can. And there'll be an RSS feed, so you can you can actually listen to it as a podcast. If you sign up through the uh, the Patreon page, you can hear it there. That's um, probably what I'm going to end up doing. Yeah, a lot of people are. I'm actually surprised how many people really want to listen to it as opposed to read. I think that's awesome. I'm totally, totally game for that. So, Mongo, Wes... It was awesome to catch up with you and to talk to you. You too. It's really good. Just good to see you after all these after these years. It's so, it's so good yeah. to see you're doing well and thriving. Also, down the line, if you ever, because I am also sort of a voiceover geek, one of the yeah. many things that, uh, and I know a couple people, if you are ever interested at a later date, uh, especially if I start reading it, it's like, hey, if I send you a recording of me doing this character. <laughs> you do that. You send me a recording. I would love to hear you do a, read a, read some of it. It'd be because awesome. That, that'll give me an excuse to, to practice voices. Voice stuff. Excellent. That's that excellent. That's to do in a really long time. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to hear somebody else's interpretation of it too. Because I, you know, at this point, I'm so close to it that who knows if I'm actually, you know, people might hear it very differently than I do. So that's awesome. And I know one or two people who have done some work for, uh, what is it? The audiobook company, Audible. Uh, Audible? Audible. Yeah, so, so <laughs> like, if that's something in the future, I was like, I'll definitely be interested in doing it. And I, like, if you want me to reach out to one or two people, if it, you know, they're they're poetry. Good to know because <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Because because the goal is actually after this is after this is all done, I w- I really want to release the whole thing as a podcast to the public. Um, you know, over the uh, probably maybe. I don't know, maybe six months from now, I'll start releasing the same chapters that I released on Patreon. I'll start releasing them as an, as an audio podcast for the public. Sure. And because I know this is going to be a series, we're going to, we're definitely going to be talking. Again. Oh yeah. Anytime. This is great. This is a lot of fun. I, I really had, I enjoyed this. Thank you. Thanks so much, man. Okay. That's cool. All right. Peace out. Have a good night. <laughs>